It's a huge topic. I've tried to focus in as much as I can on one area, which is the most common area. Um, you know, I could come back every night for a week and probably not cover everything um, and tell you a different thing each night. But uh, it's, it's good to have a rough idea of the thought process, I think, from the surgical side and what we think we might be able to help. Um, often we can't, even if we think we can. But, you know, it, we could be deluged with referrals. We didn't have at least some sort of uh, thought process with it. Along with most spinal surgeons, I consider myself predominantly a, a leg pain surgeon. We get pretty good results for radicular pain. Um, I'm not going to go over any of that tonight. I'm going to focus on, on back pain. Um, but I think in certain select patients, you can get reasonable results. I'm, I'm being fairly cagey saying that. You ha it's all about patient selection. Um, you can feel yourself being pressured into operating on patients you think aren't appropriate. You see other people do that, and you know that they're never going to do well. But I think the longer I'm a consultant, the more likely I am to do that at some point. Um, there are lots of causes of back pain. We've gone through them uh, already this evening. I'm going to concentrate on the degenerative back pain. Um, I was going to talk about osteoporotic collapse and pain, but th there wasn't going to be enough time for that. Um, trauma, infection, tumour, we we've touched on those. They're all significant things that you can have surgical interventions for, um, but I won't go over those this evening. You'll be pleased to know. Um, there's a wide range of, of pathologies, and, and Taz and Jenny have already spoken about this. You talk about isolated disc disease, whether you believe that is a, an actual entity or not, or whether it's just you haven't identified other things, is debatable, but they're supposed to be a reasonable uh, option for intervention. Um, spondylosis, just as a, a more sort of general term for arthritic changes within the spine. Facet disease, which is much beloved of the, the pain community. Um, my colleague Tony Reese at the Western doesn't really believe in it, but I think he's a, a bit extreme in that. Um, and then spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis, which Jenny touched on, um, is a, again an important cause of degenerative back pain. Um, scoliosis, uh, if you look at um, scoliosis in older people, so generally over the age of 40, it's usually due to degeneration. Um, it's a pretty huge topic. Um, the surgery required to improve people with back pain and that is, is, is fairly massive. And it's not something that's done commonly in Scotland, so I think it's, it's important to try and focus on what we offer in the west of Scotland and Scotland as a whole. But having worked down south for a year, there is quite a big practice in operating on degenerate scoliosis. Um, you get complication rates approaching 50%. It's certainly not something that, that's, that's done much here. Um, Sacroiliac disease, which I'm always a bit unsure about, but I, I think after the talk earlier, I feel a bit, little bit more confident about assessing that. I basically have to refer everyone, I think. Um, for degenerative back pain, looking at the surgical options, we've got a wide range of surgical options. Um, we can fuse, or we can not fuse. Um, that's the, the mainstay, certainly, for the last 30 or 40 years. There are, there are various experimental treatments that have been tried, and they, they kind of come in out of fashion. It's always sort of rehashes of the same thing or different, different versions, and they often don't hang around, but there are a few now that are getting some evidence for them, and, and certainly nice support, a few of them, so I'll, I'll touch on those later on. Um, but if we talk about fusion, it's not just uh, as simple as that. There are obviously lots of <coughs> questions as a surgeon. We decide what techniques we're going to use. So you have instrumented fusion, you know, you're putting metal work in, you're putting cages in. Um, these are, you know, lots of nice kits in orthopaedic surgeon, particularly spinal surgeons. Uh, the other consultants are generally pretty jealous of, of, of what we get. But it's all very expensive um, and perhaps unnecessary. Um, or non-instrumented fusions, my colleague uh, Tony Rees is very keen on non-instrumented fusions, although since I, I first worked for him as a registrar and now I think he's, he's perhaps moving a little bit more towards instrumenting more of his fusions. Um, and then where do you fuse? The most common place we fuse is posterolateral. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. You can also do interbody fusions so between the vertebral bodies or the sort of trendy sounding 360 degree fusion, which is basically a combination of the first two. Um, 
And then we have to decide you know, what do we fuse or how, how far do we fuse. Um, you can do short segment fusions or long segment fusions. Quite often the short segment fusions within five or ten years will become a longer segment fusion. Um, so it's whether you want to try and get some of that over with at the beginning or, or save something to do later on. Um, if we're operating for back pain and don't want to fuse, so this is more appealing in younger patients you think might have um, you know, active lifestyles and longer to live, obviously. Uh, disc replacement is quite, quite an interesting topic. Again, it probably warrants a, a talk by itself, but this is something I think in Aberdeen, um, one or two of the surgeons are doing them up there in the lumbar spine. There's nobody in the rest of Scotland, as far as I'm aware, does lumbar disc replacements. Um, we do some cervical disc replacements at the Western. But down south, you see, you see people throwing in two and three level disc replacements in people in their 20s, and you don't have long term evidence for these, and it's high risk surgery. So um, you have to be fairly brave. I think you'd still consider it fairly experimental. So this is probably why the indemnity is so high for all of us uh, as spine surgeons. Um, dynamic stabilization. So you're doing something to stabilize the spine, but short of fusing it, so keeping some, some movement. And some of the, the lesser known things, but perhaps uh, potentially interesting, the intradiscal techniques. So we'll go over some of those later as well. Um, We've, we've talked about investigations already. This is more from, from me as a surgeon, what investigations do I like? So uh, we've been slagging off plain x-rays, but they're actually very useful in, in some respects. That they're cheap, they're available, certainly available to us if we, if we need them for a specific reason. Um, they're not the, the sort of blanket uh, investigation that it was before. There is ionizing radiation, but the advantage is that you can do it with the patient standing up. Um, and you can have a normal looking spine and a supine film, and you get a grade two spondylolisthesis when they're standing up. Um, and the same for if you're looking at the, the coronal balance, you, you can get scoliosis. And if you're planning surgery, you want to know what are they like in their, in their uh, sort of functional position, which is usually standing up, that's when they get their pain. So there's no point planning a surgery based on, on a supine film with no idea uh, of what they're like when, when they're actually suffering. Um, they can be quite sensitive or, or quite a strong association with, with changes and back pain, um, particularly disc space narrowing, right, and more so in women. Um, and if it's a, You've got disc space narrowing at two levels. It's a very strong association with back pain, but probably doesn't actually add anything. Um, so they are useful um, for assessment of deformity and, and stability. Uh, you can get a spondylolisthesis that looks stable, but you get flexion and extension views, and you can see differential position between the two of them. So that might lead you to think, like, I need to fuse this and probably instrument fuse it, rather than maybe get away with just a simple decompression or a simple non-instrumented fusion. Um, and, and generally for your surgical planning, um, but it doesn't give you a specific diagnosis, particularly um, in general back pain. You may pick up things like osteoporotic fractures. You may pick up an unexpected tumour or metastatic deposit, but it shouldn't really be the reason you're doing it. Um, and as, uh, as we mentioned earlier, it's against the NICE guidelines for, for non-specific lower back pain. Um, MRI scans. Now, I will disagree slightly with, with Jenny and Taz, and I, I would prefer it if everyone coming to my clinic had already had an MRI scan of their back. Um, and I, yes, it, it, I think it depends how you present it to the patient. It depends how you sell it. But a lot of them come and they want a scan. And I find it very difficult to move them on unless they've had a scan because they're sure that there's something wrong. And if you can have a scan and you say you, you've got some, some wear and tear, but it's very reassuring, you know, there's nothing serious, nothing um, sinister going on. A lot of them find that reassuring, but it sounds like there's reasonable evidence against what I'm saying. But certainly it's, I, I think it's a very useful test. Um, it's a safe test. And I've got a very low threshold for scanning. Um, and if they've got any suggestion of radicular pain or anything else, I would certainly get that done. Um, again, it's, it's usually supine. So 
you have, if you, I'm not talking about radicular pain for the rest of the talk, but if you get somebody with radicular pain and you get a scan, it's done supine, so it may be that actually if you've got a standing MRI scan, there's more significant uh, nerve root compression than what you see. And th they are useful because they can help identify a surgical target, which is really what, what we're looking for or, or not looking for a lot of the time. Um, and they probably can demonstrate an active pathology, so you get modic changes, you get inflammatory changes, um, edema, that, that maybe tells you some active disease there rather than just some, some burnt-out uh, degeneration. And it's, it's a safe screening tool, you know, if they have potential red flags, you know, it's a very easy way to, to get, you know, pretty, uh, pretty good reliance. And, um, you know, if you combine it with myeloma screens, if you're concerned about that, you know, you'll, you'll not miss too much. Um, but it's static, you know, as I say, it's supine, and it may underestimate any deformity or compression. And probably about 10% of people can't tolerate it because of, of claustrophobia. Um, I think it's slightly better with the scan. The scanners are slightly bigger and you can get open magnet scanners, but I don't know if we've got any in the region that are available. And the, the images aren't as good in them as well. CT, um, this is the sort of fallback if the MRI scan is contraindicated or they can't tolerate it. And most people can, can tolerate a CT. It's very good for, for bone and joint disease, and actually, but it's usually supine. It does involve um, ionising radiation. You can get some dynamic images, particularly in the neck, you can get shots taken in one position, they get into flex or extend it and, and you know, it may give you some information about um, subtle subluxation, but it's not something we do commonly. Um, so it, it can be very useful. Um, from our point of view, if we're planning how to fix something, it tells us where we can put screws safely, particularly if you've got an anatomically um, abnormal spine. You know, you, we rely a lot on bony landmarks when we're placing our screws to try and avoid putting screw thing, screws through things like nerve roots and um, aortas, which is, uh, is uncommon, but does happen. Um, so it can, it can tell you, you know, what, you're, what you're planning. And this sort of a, a newish thing of navigator surgery, which has kind of gone through each of the areas of orthopedics, but it's currently in spines at the moment. Um, so using pre-op CT scans and some uh, <laughs> intraoperative guidance to, to place your screws. So it's good for that. Um, when it really becomes exciting is when you, you combine it with myelography, um, you get really nice uh, images of, uh, you know, of where you've got the, the stenosis or thing, things in the back. Um, or SPECT CT, which, which these pictures are of, which is combining um, you know, radionuclide, uh, radionuclide imaging with a CT, which gives you very good anatomical positioning. So that is a facet joint that's lighted up there. Like, so that's, it's not, we don't have very good access to it, but certainly it's quite an exciting thing that hopefully we'll get more access to in the future. Um, and I think that would certainly help you target potentially where the pain is coming from. But it can be difficult to interpret CTs. You know, you can stare at them and it takes a while to get your eye in and you really need an experienced MSK radiologist to pick up subtle things. Um, and I suppose if you're using it as a screen, it, you can miss some, some of the soft tissue tumours. Um, more specific interventional uh, investigations. Discography, again, kind of comes and goes in fashion. Um, it's, the reason we like it is because we're trying to say, you know, it's that disc there that's causing the pain um, and it's specific and it's targeted. So the traditional way of doing it is you, under fluoroscopic guidance, place a needle into the disc, you then inject um, contrast or saline to try and provoke the pain and you're looking for a concordant response. If the patient says, that's my normal pain, that's taken as a, as a positive response and um, you're really looking for reproduction of about 70% of the, of the pain on the IASP uh, criteria for that. Um, you then often, but not always, would inject local anaesthetic to see if that takes the pain away, um, which is more what we call a disc block, um, which sounds uh, more trendy than it is. Um, you can also assess the morphology of the disc. You'll see fissures in the annulus, and it tells you a little bit about the degeneration. But it's invasive. There was one uh, study that looked 
at it and maybe 0.25% will get discitis, maybe, maybe it's more than that. Um, and it's potentially um, injurious to the disc. So you might sometimes do it at two or three levels trying to determine, you know, two of the levels are symptomatic so you don't need to fuse the third level. But actually by putting the needle in, are you potentially, you know, storing problems for the future? This was a systematic review. I wanted to put this in because it was in the Pain Physician uh, Journal, um, which suggested there was, there was pretty good evidence for the diagnostic accuracy. So they said it's an important tool, um, but on its own, you know, it's difficult to know how much you rely on that separately. There are more studies now looking at MRI scans and how much they tally with the discography. So they're starting to get a bit better at looking at certain signs on, on modern MRI scanners, which may mean that the, the discograms are, are less useful or um, required less. Um, and the Association of American Neurosurgeons updated their guidelines this year, which is looking at some of the studies suggesting that it may accelerate disc degeneration if you inject a normal disc, which you don't want to do. So they're starting to get evidence that disc block where you put a needle in and inject local anaesthetics, you're not looking, it's not a provocation discography, but you're looking to see does inject a local anaesthetic take the pain away. So that, that seems to be um, useful. So the main part of or the main tool we've got is, is spinal fusion. Um, the aim of the surgery is to form a solid bony bridge um, across the spinal motion segment. There's different ways of doing it. So as I said, you can instrument it. So this is most commonly with pedicle screws, so screws down the pedicles from the back, uh, joined by rods, um, or you can put cages in, uh, either to replace the vertebra or to the, replace the disc, and use bone graft. Or you can do non-instrumented, where you only use bone graft. Um, the graft you use can vary, you can use autograft, so if you're doing a decompression and taking some of the bone away, you always collect it, and you can use that to put in. Um, or you can take um, Aliak Crest, which is the gold standard for fusion, but you, you get a lot of donor site morbidity with that, and Patients often complain that's the, the most painful part after the surgery. They get unsightly scars, um, you know, the sensitivity in it. Try to avoid it if possible, um, unless it's, it's a revision case. You get allografts, it can either be a frozen femoral head that's just been collected when someone's had the hip replaced. And you get synthetic grafts, um, which are the ones I tend to use more, more often because it, it makes things a little bit quicker. And you get reasonable results with those. Um, but also, you, there are other agents, recombinant human um, BMP, which is a bone morphogenetic protein, I think, um, which is very good at um, inducing uh, fusion. And it's very expensive. You can spend several thousand pounds on this. Again, there's some evidence that, that maybe you might be at risk of increasing bone tumours. So um, it's not something I've used, and I would be reluctant to use it unless there's a very strong reason to do it. If we're looking at indications for fusion, um, specific pathology, if you've got an unstable spinal segment that you want to stabilise, so a spondylolisthesis, um, we, we spoke about that earlier. If you identify a painful element, the disc or the facet, and you want to remove that to improve the pain, then you potentially, you potentially destabilise the spine. So you may want to maintain the stability after doing that, so that would be a reason to fuse. Um, or if you're doing a, a radical or a, a wide decompression, um, often the facet joint is involved in, in nerve root stenosis. And they, they say if you, if you leave half the facet joint, you should be okay. We, we try and limit it to about a third. But if you take more, more than that away, you are at risk of, um, of uh, destabilising the spine. And particularly if you've got foraminal stenosis, you take the whole facet off for that. Um, you really want to stabilise it after that. Other reasons to fuse would be if you're correcting deformities. You've got a degenerate scoliosis. You, you may have done osteotomies or um, corpectomies to try and straighten the spine. So you you'd obviously need to fuse after that. Or if you've got somebody that's starting to develop a deformity, um, either a kyphosis or, or something else, you might want to 
consider um, fusing to try and prevent the progression of that. Non-specific pathology. Um, this is uh, quoting what, what Taz quoted earlier. So the NICE guidelines suggest can you consider referral in people that have failed everything else and are willing to have a go. Um, it's fairly uh, negative uh, patient you're getting at this point. They failed everything else. So I don't know how great it is to, to be seeing these people in your, in your clinic, but, but they're desperate. Um, and the people looking after them are desperate. And they have to explore all options. Um, what we want to do is be able to select the patients we're going to do well in. So there was this, um, there was a very good paper published last year, which compared the results of MRI, provocative discography, facet joint blocks, orthosis or mobilization, where you gave somebody a, an orthosis from a month, and if that took the pain away by restricting spinal movement, that was supposed to guide you as to, as to whether they do well with fusion. Um, and also temporary external fixation, where they, they put pedicle screws in through the skin and rods on the back, which sounds a bit dodgy. Um, and they correlated these with the people that underwent with the results of spinal fusion. So unfortunately, they couldn't identify anyone that you could predict that will be treated effectively by spinal fusion. So all these things we do probably doesn't really help us. A lot of it's down to how you feel about the patient. Um, I like to think orthopedic surgeons are sensitive. So the, 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 the sort of su subtle evaluation of the biopsychosocial factors and, and all that sort of uh, stuff. But, but basically, we've, we've, it, it's a decision you have to make, and there isn't an awful lot to help you, in it, and that's, that's disappointing, clearly. Um, if we're instrumenting, uh, this is the most common way to do it, so sepedical screws and rods um, that allows for some deformity corrections. So this girl, uh, she had, a, I think she had, a, it was a Virgil in a grade two slip, so there was some improvement when we put the rods in. So you don't always get it fully reduced, but it does give you some indirect decompression by pulling the bone back a little bit. You get instant stability, so you don't need to, unless there's a problem, you don't usually need to, to brace them. You can get them going straight away. I think it's quite good for the patient to feel that they're, they're fixed straight away, you know, for the sort of positive mental um, approach to it. And I think they do quite well with that. Um, the French are very keen on sagittal balance. It's all about restoring your lumbar lordosis and your, the balance of your spine. Um, so you can dial it in using cages and uh, osteotomies and things. So if you're doing that, you can maintain that by fusing them posteriorly. You get a higher rate of radiological fusion. Um, you have expensive implants. It takes longer to put them in. There's iatrogenic damage. As I said, you, you do see CT scans where the, the screws are perilously close to major vascular structures or um, nerve roots. And you, know, you can take out a nerve root with a screw. And there's an infection risk if you put implants in. You know, you will get an infection at some point. And the metalwork is only in there until the fusion takes over. So if your bone doesn't fuse, um, you know, a year, 18 months down the line, you've got a problem where you start to get metal fatigue and the metal work will fail. And then you've got a problem because someone has had surgery potentially destabilizing them. They've got broken metal work in. So you've got quite a lot of pressure on you to then go in and consider revising it. If you don't use instrumentation, it's quicker and it's cheaper. It's safer in osteoporotic bone because there is a risk with screws that you, they can cut out of osteoporotic bone. The, the bone can fail around about the screws, um, although your construct stays where it is, the bone moves. Um, you can get screws where you, you squirt cement down them, which there's some evidence for, but again, it's, uh, it's better pr probably to avoid it, I think. Um, you get lower radiological fusion rates, but a lot of studies say you get similar clinical outcomes. So people still get reasonable relief of pain. Um, and if the bone doesn't fuse, you're probably not in as bad a position as if they've got broken metalwork in there. Um, but you can't use it to try and correct or maintain um, deformity. And usually you'd, you'd brace them for at least six weeks, but probably for a little bit longer, whether it's with a corset or something more formal, um, just to pretend that you're doing something to help the fusion. Um, 
Posterolateral fusion is the most common fusion technique we use. Uh, you put pedal screws and rods in. Um, you, put, you prepare the transverse processes. You either just break them so you've got exposed cancellous bone and all the, um, all the important growth factors coming out of the bone, or you can decorticate them to expose the cancellous bone. You then pack bone graft down the, the gutter on either side, uh, which you can, you can see hopefully on the x-ray if it's projecting. Um, and the idea is you get a, a fusion forming between the transverse processes. If you have taken the, the posterior structures off to decompress, you can't put any graft there, but if it's a fusion without doing that, then you, you can put bone graft down over the, the lamina as well. Um, you can do it percutaneously or, or minimally invasively. Um, whether you can get a good bone graft and graft site uh, preparation is, is debatable, but certainly um, there is a vogue for that at the moment. Um, but if you've got a very unstable structure, you, you don't do anything to control the anterior column, so you may want to combine it with, with some sort of interbody cage. Interbody fusions, this, um, lots of options for these, the A-lift, P-lift, T-lift, X-lift. Um, they're all interbody fusion devices where you remove the disc. It just depends which direction you, you go from. You can either go th through the abdomen or go from the front, but you have major vessels sitting, particularly uh, L4-5, where you've got the bifurcation. Um, so that you'd usually do that with a, a vascular surgeon, either scrubbed or available. Um, P-lift and T-lift can be done at the same time as, as a postlateral fusion quite easily. The X-lift is a sort of extreme lateral one, which is, is becoming more popular. Um, there was an axial lift, which you do... Um, from in front of the coccyx, tunnelling your way up. It got the nickname the poo screw for obvious reasons because uh, <laughs> there were a few failures and problems with that, so we don't see any of those around. Um, if you do put an interbody fusion cage in, you can restore the disc height, um, which allows you to decompress indirectly the, the foramen. Um, you can have a cage with a, a low dosis built into it, so you can restore the sagittal balance. You can get a decent amount of bone graft in, so you can get a good fusion. Um, and you can do it through less invasive techniques, particularly the X-Lift, there's quite a nice uh, kit for that. Um, but there is morbidity associated with it. I've seen people with nasty post-op ileus from the um, abdominal approaches. You, you do have vascular injuries. Um, you go through the psoas for the, the lateral approaches and you can have problems with your, your, your lumbar plexus there. Um, and you have to, to obviously warn patients. And particularly in men, if you're going from the front, there is a, about a 10% rate of retrograde ejaculation. So a lot of them, you would cancel them for that, and they may have to see uh, fertility services beforehand if they're, they're planning a family. Um, the fusion outcome in chronic lower back pain, there was quite a big systematic review which uh, managed to identify four RCTs, um, which is, is probably in keeping with the rest of orthopaedic literature. They found that there was an improvement in back-specific disability with fusion compared to unstructured non-operative care, um, but three of them actually said you're as well doing three weeks of decent uh, CBT basing on um, trying to get rid of people's fear about back injury and you get equivalent results. That, that, again, is more appealing than perhaps operating on some of these patients. But the evidence isn't great, so I think we need to, to, to look at that um, in the future. Hopefully, um, there'll be more coming out, but everyone has their, their own interests when they produce uh, uh, literature on these things. This was... Um, a little bit more interesting, and this is probably more relevant. So, so this was, a, again, it's, it's going back a few years, there haven't been any recently, but they looked at specific outcome scores or prospectively uh, gathered Oswald Street Disability Index scores for patients that had low back pain. And what is, is probably encouraging and is useful is that you can improve somebody if you've got an actual surgical target. If, you, if there's something you're aiming to improve or treat with your fusion, um, they do get better. You know, so spondylolisthesis, so proper degenerate disc disease. Um, if you 
confusing somebody because they've got non-specific pain, you can't really identify a problem, then you're probably not going to do very well with them and, and they won't improve that much. And I think that is probably what everyone would experience if, if they do operate on these people. Um, one of the biggest concerns with fusion is adjacent segment disease. So the theory is that if you fuse one segment, you put more of a, a strain through the segment above, that leads to then accelerated de degeneration there. Um, and if you're doing it in younger people, you know, you could find yourself at five, ten years coming back and extending the fusion and then coming back again a third time and extending the fusion further up until you've fused the whole lumbar spine. So there was a, a good paper out this year which shows that, yes, you do get radiological deterioration, but clinically it doesn't seem to make a difference. So, and that, that was an average of 13 years of follow-ups. That, that's a fairly robust study, which is reassuring. Um, but it's something you always cancel a patient about that you may, you may or you know, if they're young, you're very likely to require further procedures in the future. Um, lumbar disc arthroplasty or total disc replacement is, uh, it's been around for quite a long time. It's been around probably since the early 90s or even before. And it, the evidence for it is growing. Um, it's supposed to maintain the, the motion at each segment to give you a more naturally moving spine to reduce the risk of adjacent segment disease. Um, and if you've got isolated disc disease and normal facets, then, then it, it, it's probably okay. The, the joke about it is most people say, well, it's just an expensive fusion device. And certainly some studies show that over 50% of these you put in will ankylose anyway. So it's just, you know, it's, it's maybe three or four times the cost of, of doing a fusion implant and it, it may not work. And it, it's quite a big dissection to put these in. And they have, I have seen images of um, sometimes the bearing in the middle is uh, mobile and it can be extruded out and pushed against vessels or going back the way, so, so it, you can run into fairly significant problems with them. Um, there was a meta-analysis of RCTs, which is, is, is pretty decent um, uh, evidence for it, which showed that they're equivalent or, you know, compared to the gold standard of fusion at two-year follow-up, they're, they're pretty good, but, you know, maybe people are doing a little bit better than, than you'd expect. Whether it's, uh, whether it's enough to, to put somebody in with an implant that you're not sure about the long-term survivorship for is, is unclear. And most sensible people would say they should only be doing it within some form of study with, with planned long-term follow-up. Um, but that isn't always the case, unfortunately. The NICE guidelines from 2009, so they're slightly out of date, do support the use um, if there's failed conservative treatment. But again, they suggest that it should be MDT selection, which I think for most of these patients, there should be some MDT support for it to cover your own back apart from anything else. And it should be you know within a properly audited unit. Um, and again, they questioned about the, the sort of longer term outcomes of these. So that, that's the main concern. The non-rigid stabilization, this is the, the Dynesis implant, which was popular for a while. And some people are still putting them in. Um, it's a sort of partially restricts what you can do with your spine without, without formally fusing it. Um, it's a fairly straightforward procedure. You, you can put it in, I think, in less than an hour normally, depending on how many you can do. You can do several levels with it. Um, it's basically a, a polythene rod over a bit of string. Between, between some pedicle screws and it prevents um, when you're extending, it prevents your, your back collapsing down or extending too much so you'll maintain some of your, your, your spinal canal calibre, offload the facet joints, um, supposedly offload the disc. Um, so that's supposed to improve things. And it is supported by the NICE guidelines but again, you know, you've got to carefully select your patients and we don't really know what the long-term uh, outcome of these is. Um, some of the, the sort of smaller print things that, that may come to, to be more important in the future um, you can do electrothermal radiofrequency ablation of the disc, I guess. You're, you're trying to um, basically heat up the abnormal nerve fibres. The, the theory is that when you get annular tears, you get ingrowth of nerve fibres into a normally 
um, aneural uh, disc tissue. So then you, you, you can put in a probe and try and burn these off to improve your pain. Um, again, you, you'd usually do it with discography to confirm you're in a painful disc. There are quite a few um, problems with these, and there's about a 12% certainly short-term nerve injury uh, rate with, with, with some of the studies, because you, you're putting, although you're using uh, biplanar fluoroscopy, you're still sticking something fairly significant into a um, dangerous space. Um, and the evidence is inconsistent, so, so NICE's guidance on that was really it should be used only as part of a, of a proper research trial. The same goes for percutaneous nucleoplasty, which is similar. Um, you basically cut channels in the disc, um, trying to get it to fibrose up, I, I, I guess, um, coagulating the tissue with this probe, and you put five or six channels in it. Um, and again, it's probably the same sort of principle, you're trying to burn off the abnormal nerve tissues, but there were potential problems with that, as you can imagine. Um, it takes quite a long time to so do it under local anaesthetic and sedation. I think it would be uncomfortable for the patient. Um, and again, it should be done within, within a research trial. Future developments, um, stem cell transplant, it seems to be the answer for everything, but there are animal studies that show you get some regeneration of a degenerate disc in animals, so that is probably something to look out for. Um, I won't talk about it tonight, but the antibiotic uh, approach for back pain is very interesting. I attended a talk by Hannah Albert, at the um, Brits by meeting earlier this year, and she's very persuasive. Um, she's quite a sort of dynamic Dane who was very enthusiastic, and although it's a bit of a Daily Mail favourite, I think you know there may well be something in that, although we need, we need several studies really to support the, the findings that she had, because she was saying you could you know, really cure about half of patients whether they've had surgery or not had surgery um, just with, with antibiotics. So there are a few methodology flaws in a, a study, but I think, that, I think there will be something in that, so try not to be too cynical about it. Um, so to conclude, I haven't kind of still sitting on the fence. It may be appropriate if you can identify some pathology that you think you're going to fix. Last resort in non-specific back pain, if at all. You know, I think you really want to guide the patient away from surgery before they get to the point where they're sitting in the orthopaedic clinic, preferably. So that, that's uh, up to you guys to keep them away. Um, patient selection is difficult. That, that's the key. You know, if there was a study that said you do this test and you can tell that patient's going to do well, then life would be easy. But it's really difficult and outcomes are variable. And, you know, you, you quote to patient that, you, you know, if you've identified a degenerate disc, you maybe quote about 60% chance of improving them, 70% if, you, if you're sort of feeling positive that day. But, but you do try and paint quite a bleak picture. And maybe, maybe they do a little bit better than that, but I think it's very important that they know that there's a high chance they won't do well because a lot of them come back and say they wish they'd never had it done or they're a bit better or they're no better, but they've been through surgery and all the risks of that, so it's difficult. So I think some of the non-fusion options, whether it's ones that I've sort of touched on, whether it's ones that are yet to appear, I think are promising and um, hopefully, I don't want to take away my job, but hopefully for the back pains particularly, we'll, we'll come up with some better ideas of, of what we can do to treat them.